So God's word for today is from Revelation in chapter 19. Revelation 19 takes our eyes and our thoughts to the glory of heaven in this great description, beginning at verse 5. The Apostle John is reporting, and he says, Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people, the saints. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. This is the word of the Lord. You park in the parking lot and you know you're in the right place because you see a few guys scattered around in tuxedos and a few ladies wearing bright colored dresses that they normally wouldn't wear. You see people strolling from the parking lot into the main reception hall carrying gifts and you know it. You're at the right place. You are at the biggest and most expensive wedding reception to which you've ever been invited. And actually, you're a little bit nervous because you're thinking there's going to be more than three pieces of silverware at the plate setting. You're going to have to figure out, you know, which of the four forks you use first and with which, you know, what, what it's for. And uh, you're going to wonder, uh, man, where do, I, where do I put my gift? Where do I take my gift and, and, and put it down? And where are the restrooms? And all kinds of important questions that you wonder when you go to a new reception place. You walk into the door wondering if you're going to know anybody, and in the lobby of the grand reception hall, what shocks you and surprises you is that you see people of all races and ethnic groups. The the couple that's getting married is your ethnic group, but there's all kinds of others there, and it makes you curious what, what kind of connections they have that they're somehow connected to people of all these different nations there. It it surprises you a little bit as you think, well, I'm not going to know anyone for sure. And suddenly you catch sight of a couple across the lobby, and they look like a picture of your grandparents that you remember, but your grandparents died when you were five years old, and you shake off the thought quickly. There are attendants floating around, dressed in the brightest, whitest uniforms you have ever seen. And it kind of has a vibe and a feel like they're on roller blades, like, like the Sonic uh, people who deliver your goodies from Sonic. You know, they're just kind of floating and gliding around, and uh, it, it just catches your attention that they're, they're there, they're serving the people, and then one glides his way to you and introduces yourself, and he says, Hi, I'm your host, my name is Mike, and he says your name, and he knows you. You think that's kind of odd, but he offers to escort you to your seat in the grand banquet hall. Mike escorts you through another set of doors. You enter the grand banquet hall, 
and the first thing you notice is that you can't see to the other side. It is so huge. You can't see the ceiling. It is so high. It is this vast celestial hall, and, it, and yet you can't see ceiling. You can't see walls, but there's this echoing buzz noise, like, like a, a rushing sound, like a waterfall. And as loud as it is, it isn't deafening. As vast as it is, it, it doesn't bother you. It's actually a very comforting sound. It's like people talking and laughing and music playing and glasses clinking and silverware clanging and, and hosts and all at the same time. And it's this loud noise, but it's not loud. It's, it's just surrounding. It's comforting and there's singing, and there's dancing. And Mike says, follow me. And he takes you through the room, through the room, showing you to your table. And on your way to your table, you notice the head table. And the head table has uh, two chairs in the middle, and then uh, there's six chairs on either side. And actually, the wedding party is taking their seats at the head table, and you thought, wow, I came at just the right time. I get a close-up look of the wedding party, except get this, all the wedding party is guys. There's not a single female on, on the wedding party table. And you think, well, that's kind of strange. What's going on with that? And then Michael shows you to your seat, and as you're, you're getting seated, and he's showing you to your seat, you're thinking, you know, that kind of reminded me, that head table, it just for a second reminded me of like, like Da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper, like there were these, you know, six on either side, and, and then that, that leaves your mind, and then as you're getting seated, you hear the groom being introduced. And you're thinking the, the, the Last Supper, and you're thinking that head table looks strange, and you're thinking, boy, wouldn't it be interesting if, well, the, the, I don't know, that's a crazy thought, but it reminds me of, <gasps> and as you're thinking it, the, the MC of the evening says it, the DJ says, and the groom is, it's Jesus! The groom is Jesus, and Michael shows you your seat, and you kind of slouch down thinking, I'm at the wedding of Jesus. I hope he doesn't notice me and make me embarrassed. I, I don't want to be, I, I, for as sinful as I am and for as faithless as I am, I'm not sure I could even stand. And then in the crowd hushes from their cheers, and Jesus takes the microphone, and he stands up, and he says, welcome, citizens of the kingdom. Saints of the Most High, sons and daughters of the King, communion of saints and holy Christian church, I would like to introduce you to, and as you're sitting there, you feel this hand on your shoulder, and it extends to you, and it's a scarred hand, and you look up, and you're right next to Jesus, and he brings you to your feet, and he says, I want to introduce you to my bride and you stand and you're feeling embarrassed and the place erupts in the loudest hallelujah chorus you have ever heard and all the celestial hosts these angels dressed in white like they float to the highest of heavens but you can still hear them and you can still see them and they lead this massive group of people in praise and they're all clapping and they're singing and they're dancing for you the bride of christ 
That, my friends, is the wedding supper of the Lamb. That is the picture that Revelation gives us as we really look ahead to what will be. You know how um, it's just, uh, you just do this. When you, get, when you get married, you take pictures. I've uh, performed a marriage or two of you out there, and uh, part of the day is uh, taking pictures. I uh, still enjoy Gail's pictures, and I had to make sure we had our picture taken together. I did when I married you and Larry. Uh, right pictures. We, uh, I was just uh, counseling with a wedding couple, and they want at least 900 pictures of their wedding day. Uh, it, it's a special day. You want, you want the moments collected, right? So just like we enjoy a wedding album now that lets us look at it and look back in the past, some of us further than others, and, uh, and enjoy that day, this is the same thing except in reverse. It's the opposite, right? So Revelation 19 is like a wedding photo album. It's a picture or a vision that God gives us of the wedding supper of the Lamb, except instead of having already happened and we, look, and we look at that wedding album and enjoy the past, it's going to happen and we look at the picture, Revelation 19, which is a photo album, we, and it help, helps us look forward to the future with similar feelings and thoughts of, of joy and, and appreciation and even now anticipation. Uh, the book of Revelation, let me say a couple things about it because uh, we're in it for the second time in two weeks. Did you know that the book of Revelation does not contain a single direct quote of any other Bible verse in the Bible? Not one. However, it contains over 500 allusions to other uh, uh, parab like parables, pictures of the Bible, paraphrases. So the book of Revelation actually is very scriptural as it compares to other books of the Bible. And for that reason, we, we need to make sure that the book of Revelation, we understand, it stands alongside of the rest of Scripture and not above it. Not separate from it. But the book of Revelation is combined with the rest of Scripture. The book of Revelation does not and should not introduce any new biblical teachings to us that are not contained in the other books of the Bible. We get in trouble when we want to go there, by the way. So it, it stands alongside of Daniel and Ezekiel and Matthew 24 and 25 as Jesus talks about the end times. The book, Revelation brings nothing new to the scene as far as teaching is concerned in the Bible, but it pictures it in a grand, glorious way for us. And that's where we're at here. One of the truths that Revelation highlights for us that we're focusing on today is this. Jesus is the groom and you're his bride. That all believers, the communion of saints, are the bride of Christ. And Jesus is fully devoted and committed to you as your groom. Let me, let me show you where that happens elsewhere in the Bible. So in Isaiah chapter 62, it says, As a groom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And then in Ephesians 5, it says this, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless.
that's a commitment from Jesus that we all need. Because we all know in our own conscience our lack of commitment to the Christian faith, our lack of faithfulness to Jesus who is so faithful to us. We understand that because of sin that we're dirty and that we're compromised and that we're not naturally beautiful in a spiritual way and that we can do nothing on our own to be righteous before God, but that Jesus makes us this promise. He says, I I promise you my holy love, and I promise it to you forever. You're going to enjoy it now, and you're going to enjoy it in the ultimate consummation of our wedding, of our marriage, and that's in heaven. So let's look a little bit more at the picture of Revelation 19, and starting with the groom, that's in verse 7, where it says this, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And then the multitude cheers about the wedding of the Lamb. And now I find this interesting. If we're looking for glory, if we want this triumphant celebration, the wedding of the Lamb? Really? Couldn't we go with lion? Right? Or maybe the wedding of the warrior. The what wedding of the lamb. As in bloody sacrifice. As in that that innocent little creature that had its throat slit so that the angel of death would pass over the Israelites in Egypt and it would allow them to escape from slavery. This, it's a, the lamb is a, is a victim, not a victor. The lamb is weak, not strong. The lamb is taken advantage of by other powers, not the ultimate power. And yet it says... The wedding of the Lamb has come, and the angels cheer, and the saints cheer. And why? Because the greatest glory of God is meeting sinners where they need Him the most. And that's at the cross. The Lamb pictures the cross of Jesus Christ for us and His sacrifice for the sins of all people. So really, heaven is rejoicing that Jesus is the crucified one. Heaven is rejoicing that God forgives us through the blood of his own son. And then get this, says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, verse 7. So the saints are rejoicing and they're glad and they're giving him glory, not just because he died. You don't praise someone who's dead. But the reason the saints are praising this lamb is because he's not the victim anymore. He is the victor. He is the conquering lamb. He rose from the dead. And so now the lamb is the king, right? Now the lamb is the the groom, and we're the bride. And so the Revelation saints sing. um, This is from Revelation 5.12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Seven adjectives all lined up to say this is how we see the lamb, the king, and describing him. He is so glorious, he's not dead. And he says to you, you are mine forever. Everything that I have done, everything that I have, everything who I am, I am giving to you, my bride. I am yours.
and he's glad. Jesus taking the microphone from the DJ at the wedding supper of the Lamb doesn't take it and go hide in a corner and complain to the Father, Father, do I really have to introduce this, my bride? Jesus is glad and he's delighted that you are his and he announces you with joy. As I studied this, I thought, you know, when I think about that moment, I guess that, that makes me glad. I'm excited that Jesus is excited about me, but am I always excited that Jesus is excited about me? Am I always glad that he is the groom and I'm the bride? Am I glad when he needs me to go through pain and hardship to learn a lesson? Am I glad when I should be giving him more than I want to give him and he asks for it? Am I glad every morning when I wake up when he creates the new day, whether it's raining or sunny, whether it's cold or hot, whether I'm tired or frustrated or whether I feel like I'm top of the world? Am I glad? Am I always glad in worship? Am I glad to set aside time in my day when I do nothing other than spend time with him in quiet prayer and listening to his word and, and hearing him speak as my shepherd through the voice of the scriptures? Yeah, yeah. And am I glad when I have to give in? Am I glad when I, I have to give up? Am I as glad now as I picture myself being in heaven? No. But I want to be. How do I change that? How do you change that? How do you live as the bride of Christ with, with the joy that you'll have in heaven, with that joy now? And I don't... I don't want us to offer as an excuse, well, I have a sinful flesh, I live in the world, the devil is active. Great. We're not going to change those. But I can, as the bride of Christ, live with joy now, with much more joy than I have in the past. Here's, here's the place to start. Just understand how joyful Jesus is to be married to you. Start there. Understand how fully committed, how unconditionally he, com he is committed to you. Um, when I do marriage counseling, um, some of you will discover this someday because you'll be sitting in my office. Some of you probably do it and you haven't been to my office. But uh, I'm just going to tell you I'm on to your game. And you can come to me and we'll talk about it and we'll work through it. But usually in marriage counseling, nine out of ten times, as the couple sits with me, Here's how, here's how it all plays out. And even, even when the couple says they're not going to do this, and they do it. He tells me how she's the problem. And then she tells me how he's the problem. As long as that is the scene, there is no progress. There is no resolution. There is no improving that marriage because each of them sees the other as the problem and there's only resolution and growth when each of them can say, I think I'm part of the problem. Actually, when one of them says, I think I'm entirely the problem, that's really great. I love that. Uh, but it's okay if one can just say, I think I'm part 
of the problem. But no, we tend to see ourselves as victims, don't we? And this is age-old. We haven't just figured this out. This is age-old. This happened in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? When God came to Adam and Eve after they sinned, and he said, Adam, what's the problem? Who did Adam say the problem was? Really, he said God was the problem. He said, God, it's this woman you gave me. But he thought Eve was a problem too. And who did Eve think was a problem? Well, she said Satan was a problem. But is right. They're all pointing fingers at each other. We see ourselves as a victim. Let me tell you what. That's robbing you of joy. It's robbing you of joy in your life with Jesus because what we do is we actually see ourselves as a victim of Jesus, as a victim of God. God, I'd be much happier if you weren't screwing my life up. God, I'd be much happier if you were doing A, B, and C, but you're not doing A, B, and C, so I think I kind of have a right to feel a little grudge against you. I have a right to not be as joyful as I should be. God, I, you're making me a victim. He, he tells me that she's the problem. She, is he how it works in a marriage? And now I'm married to God, and who's the problem? God is. We're so human. So I tell you that for your awareness. It's true in human relationships. It's true in my relationship with you, Jesus, and I'm sorry. How could I ever, ever think, Jesus, that you are the problem? But I do, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. And what does Jesus say about that? When I say to Jesus, Jesus, you have made me a victim. I don't want to be a victim. I resent that. I resist it. Don't make me a victim, I say. And Jesus says, okay, then I'll be the victim. then I will make the sacrifice. Then I will become the lamb. I love you so much. I'm not going to just tell you, you better just shape up and behave, I'm, but I'm going to become the victim willingly, gladly for you. And that will take care of everything. Fresh start. Clean, righteous acts, linens, and wedding garments to wear because Jesus says, you don't want to be a victim? Okay. I will be. That's how much I love you. That's how committed I am to you. That's our heavenly groom. He, Jesus becomes the victim. And then here's the response. Um, verse 5. Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. You ever consider yourself like you're a great Christian? You ever, you know, that feel good and you praise God and things are going, that's you then, you're in this. Do you ever consider yourself a small Christian, that you don't have what it takes, that you're not as super strong as some other Christians that you know, that you've done some things you regret? Yeah, yeah that's, you're in here too. We, we're all the bride of Christ, from the biggest believer to the smallest believer, to the biggest church and the smallest church. Jesus marries us all. Verses 7 and 8, and his bride has made herself ready. I'm ready for my groom Jesus. How? Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. See, that? the bride made herself ready. I'm putting on my own clothes. I'm putting on my wedding dress all by myself. 
but where does a wedding dress come from? Who gives it to me? It's given to me to wear. I don't go out and, I, I don't go out and spend $5,000 on it. I don't have it made by a special friend. I don't buy it on consignment. It's given to me to wear. Uh, that's a gift. Salvation is a gift. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Isn't that strange but beautiful that my righteous acts are given to me? That, that my groom, Jesus, sees everything I do with Google eyes of love, head over heels in love over me, and, and, and sees everything that I do through righteous acts that he's already given me in his love. Uh, that's the new identity. That's, that's the identity that's yours. So I want to talk to a couple demographics of people uh, out there today, here in this church and, and watching online. First of all, to the married. When Jesus is your groom and he's your identity, he's more important in your heart and your life and your destiny than your spouse is. If he is not, listen to me clearly, if you put your spouse ahead of Jesus, you're creating a problem for your spouse and a problem in your own heart because your spouse will become your savior. And when your spouse is your savior, that's a, that's a cruddy savior. None of us make good saviors because we can't do what the savior needs to do. But if your spouse is your number one and you elevate your spouse above Jesus and look to them to provide for you what only Jesus can provide, and that can be uh, intimacy, affirmation, security, telling you how beautiful you are, providing for you emotionally, always having the right answer, giving you things, being with you, all that. If you're looking to them for that more than you look to Jesus for that, there's no way they can provide it. You'll be disappointed, and you'll raise expectations for them so high that they won't be able to meet them, and you'll find frustration in both of your hearts. The answer is ordered love. Ordered love. Just remember, Jesus is your number one, and your spouse is your number two. And tell them that, and if they don't like it, help them understand it. And if they still don't like it, they need to get over it. But tell them that any Christian spouse will appreciate that place in your life, as you explain it that way. Okay, so that was to married people. To married people with kids, same routine, okay? Your kids are not number one. And now you have a spouse and your kids. So who's number one there? Are, you, is, are your kids number one, your spouse number two? Is your spouse number one, your kids are number two? Neither. Jesus is number one. So be careful when you say, my kids are my life. Jesus is your life. And he gives you kids as a gift. Take care of them. Love them. Jesus is your Savior and your salvation in your life, in your, your ordered love, and your kids fit under him. Again, same thing. I've seen parents, I've done it myself, want to be saved through who my kids are and how they perform. 
I want them to be my savior. I want them to vicariously save me. They grew up to be president. They have this beauty that I don't have. They can do things. They can be impressive, right? Put pressure on kids so much to be my savior. And again, what happens? It frustrates them. It frustrates me. Jesus has the mercy and the glory to say, I can do that for you. You don't need that from your children, all right? So that's if you're married, if you're with kids. To the unmarried, to singles out there, and I'm talking you've never been married, you're widowed, uh, you're divorced, you're single, okay? You do not need to have a mate or a date to be a complete whole person, Well, I I take that back. Actually, you do need to have a mate and a date to be a complete whole person, and Jesus is that. Jesus is your number one. If if you're a woman and your husband has died, or you're a woman and you're not married yet, Jesus is your husband. He's your number one. Same men, right? You're single. Jesus is that one for you. And when he's your ordered love in that way, it's going to change what you post on eHarmony. It doesn't make eHarmony bad. It doesn't make the desire for a, a mate or a date bad, but it's going to change how desperately you need that and what that looks like. And let me tell you this, when you are in a place of balance and ordered love and Jesus is your one, that is so attractive to another man, to a man or a woman, right, as you're dating, that is so attractive, so endearing, so deep, because your love has a basis and you're not, that other person is going to sense it and realize that you don't need them to be complete because you're already complete in Jesus who is your everything. The bride, Jesus is the groom and all believers are his bride. So remember that this is very, it's very spiritual, it's very celestial, it's also very practical and very relational. When Jesus says to you, I'm, I'm the groom, you're the bride, and Jesus says, I'm your number one. Couples are waiting longer to get married. Did you know this? The average age for a male to get married in the year 1970, was 23. The average age of a male getting married in 2018 is 29.5 and going up. Right? Millennials especially are waiting longer to get married. You know why? There's a New York Times article that was published this year, and it, it, it nails it. Um, Julianne Simpson, they interviewed, and she has a boyfriend, and they asked her about her relationship and not getting married. And uh, so she's dating her, her, she's still dating at age 24, her boyfriend from high school. They're not married yet. And they said, why not? She said this, I'll get married when my life is in order. I'm still figuring out so many things. Right? And that's real. There's student loans. There's, am I in the right career? There's, uh, I, I want to travel. I want to have freedom with my friends. I haven't explored the world yet. I don't know if I can be confined to live this married life yet, so I want to wait on it. And so, uh, interviewers and researchers and scientists have kind of peeled back the onion on this, and why is that so important? One of the main pieces is this, that these kids are seeing divorce in parents and grandparents, and they're saying, I want to minimize the risk of divorce, 
And so I really want to make sure, I really, 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 really want to make sure that I'll be married to this person forever. Now, this is ironic. What's happening more now than ever is that these couples will then live together without being married. Here's what's interesting about that. I think secular researchers will say, these millennials, they just, they want to make sure they're not getting divorced. I don't buy it. Because sociologically and scientifically, aside from the scriptures, living together increases the odds of divorce. It increases the likelihood that you will be divorced if you live together before marriage. So millennials who have this data are still saying, I'm going to live together. Therefore, I don't think it's so much out of a concern about the sanctity of marriage. I think it's emotional. I think it's selfish. And I think it's this. Marriage is a conditional arrangement. And when the conditions meet my needs, meet what I want to look for in a marriage, then I'm ready to jump in. And that's why with that attitude of what marriage is, marriage is, it's, they're getting later and later, older and older as they get married. How about, how about this? Marriage is an unconditional commitment. How about that? Did you know that in cultures that have arranged marriages, mom and dad say to Sally, hey Sally, guess what? You're going to marry Billy. And Sally thinks Billy's a nerd. But that's what you do in that culture. In cultures with arranged marriages, the divorce rate is way lower than in cultures where it's the free choice of those who are getting married. You get the pieces coming together here? When you're in a culture for an arranged marriage, there is no other choice. You are told you will be married to this person. You have no other choice. Guess what that is? That's unconditional commitment. You don't have another choice. There are no conditions. This is your marriage. And the divorce rate plummets because there's no other choice, because it's not conditional. You and I have an arranged marriage with Jesus. And Jesus has an arranged marriage with us. It's promised from eternity. It's signed in his own blood. He followed the Father's will, and he said, I'll do whatever it takes. He became the victim, and he says, I am unconditionally committed to you forever. I love you, Jesus says. You're mine. You're my bride. And he comes to you, and he gets down on one knee, and in baptism, he promises you his unconditional love forever. And in Holy Communion, he gives you all of himself, even his physical self. And in the gospel, he proclaims to you again and again your true identity, which belongs to him. And in all of it, he's saying, will you marry me? Amen. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, what a glorious husband you are.
as we, the bride, the church, know how sinful and unfaithful and uncommitted and conditional we can be. And yet this picture of the wedding supper of the Lamb fills us with joy because you're filled with joy over us. Dear Jesus, fill us with that kind of joy even today in this, this wicked, dirty world which is sometimes very hard to live in. May, may the image of Revelation 19, may, may that be in front of us today and always as we rejoice in being your bride. Fill us with that kind of joy so others are curious about what makes us so glad in this life and we can tell them about you. Make us, Jesus, more committed, more unconditional every day of our lives as we look forward to the glory that awaits us. In your holy and heavenly name we pray. Amen.